Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Political Currency with Ed Bulls and George Osborne. So here we are, week two of our podcast and surprise, surprise, George Osborne has already jetted off around the world and we're doing this remote. Yeah, uh, Ed, I'm in uh, Abu Dhabi, where it's a chilly 41 degrees centigrade outside my hotel room. I've just been in Singapore, thought I'd check out the real place rather than Singapore on Thames. Which of your many jobs is taking you to um, Abu Dhabi? Several jobs, actually, combined for this particular trip. <laughs> Don't tell me you're going to look for British Museum artefacts and to see if any have made it out there. <laughs> There's some very exciting museums here. The Louvre is already uh, in Abu Dhabi. Ed, where have you been? Our WhatsApp group is full of pictures of you on a sailing boat somewhere. I I did, actually. Although, unlike you, I made sure I got back to London in time. I crossed the Channel for the first time in my life. My son was the skipper, and we sailed off from the Hamble Friday night all through the night, arrived at Cherbourg for the next afternoon, and um, crossing the Channel in a small boat, actually going towards France. Big shipping channels, dark, huge ships, Really exciting. Well, thank God you made it back, or else else we'd have David Miliband here instead. Anyway, on to the show. Uh, Thank you. Well, (laughs) I'm not sure David Miliband would be able to decide whether or not he was going to come on the show. We'd have to think about it for a long time. Anyway, so (laughs) tell us, tell us, what are we doing this week? So we're going to start with the uh, big story in British politics this week, which is Rishi Sunak uh, apparently watering down the country's green commitments and creating quite a row with some of his own backbenchers and with British industry. And then while we're recording this podcast, the um, Bank of England will announce its interest rate decision. As we're speaking, the Treasury will already know the decision because the Treasury Observer will have reported it back. The Chancellor's working out how he's going to respond to whatever they decide to do. But we'll find out uh, while we're recording. And then we always promise that we bring you something we think's important but isn't getting quite as much attention as it perhaps should. And the story this week I think we should focus on is the pretty amazing one that a Canadian citizen uh, has been murdered and the Prime Minister of Canada is blaming the Indian government for carrying out that assassination. That is going to have big implications for geopolitics, implications for trade, Uh, And it's going to have an implication for how Britain handles its relationship with what is now the world's largest country. But first of all, Rishi Sunak's been all over the airwaves in the last 24 hours. I've got to say, it felt a bit panicky yesterday. They clearly weren't intending to do a speech yesterday afternoon and um, they were a bit sort of all over the place. Yeah, so I think, Ed, what we've got to try and separate out here is the way this announcement was made, which I think everyone agrees was a bit of a shambles. This was Rishi Sunak's speech in which he said 
the government was going to delay the ban on petrol and diesel cars from 2030 to 2035. And he was also going to delay some of the measures that are coming in requiring you to get rid of gas boilers and insulate your home and so on. He was clearly supposed to be some big speech in a few days' time. It leaked. There was a hastily arranged cabinet. He had to do a speech essentially in the press conference room at number 10. That's clearly, you and I would know, not how you'd make this kind of speech. But I think if you put that to one side, I'm not saying it's <laughs> It reminded not me, I've got to say, George, it reminded me of Gordon Brown in the early 90s making a speech in the Jubilee Room in Parliament to a gathered audience, which turned out to be four researchers, a policeman, and one of the people on the catering staff who was asked whether they'd mind coming to listen to him making a speech, you know, because that's what happens when you do these, these last-minute cobbled-together speeches. Yes. I was actually in the audience for the Gordon Brown neoclassical endogenous growth theory speech. We can talk about that one day. But uh, We should. There were, there were rather more people <laughs> but, there, I um, think. Uh, look, so, here is, so I think we separate out the way it was announced. I'm not saying that's not important because that's shaped some of the reaction and meant that industry wasn't really prepared for what was about to be said. But I actually have quite a lot of sympathy for what Rishi Sunak is saying, which is that all parties have made these big commitments on eliminating carbon from the economy and you get lots of plaudits for doing so and you're a, a kind of hero in the what Liz Truss would call the... Uh, dining room circuits of London, and indeed at places like the UN, who are gathering this week for their annual meetings. But there are real costs on individuals. And Rishi Sunak is saying, I am the person pointing these out. And if you are prepared to make people pay five, ten, fifteen thousand pounds for, you know, heat source pumps and like in your house, and these are, you know, disproportionately for on low income people, you should be honest enough to say so. And we don't need to do these things, he argues, in order to get to net zero by 2050, and we're already ahead of a lot of other countries. I don't know what you thought, Ed, but you know, you and I have, I think, probably in both of our parties, sometimes been the person saying, has anyone actually looked at how much this thing actually costs? So did you have some sympathy for what Rishi Sunak was saying? I thought he, um, on the Today programme this morning, was actually very good. I think, you know, it's easy to say this was just short-term political manoeuvring, trying to set a trap for Labour. I actually felt he believed this. It sort of slightly smacked of John Major's Cones hotline in the 1990s, some kind of, you know, cobbled together announcement, which was supposed to be popular. Ed, we've got a lot of younger listeners. I don't think any of them will have heard of the Cones hotline. Remind us. Well, I can't remember exactly the year, but it was after 1992, after the election, after Black Wednesday, John Major was trying to um, show his government was still in touch with people. And he came up with this idea, I think probably because he had got frustrated himself being on the motorway when there were cones still blocking lanes but the roadworks had finished and he set up a hotline so that the public could ring in and complain about excessive and redundant cones on motorways and it was a personal pledge of the prime minister the cones hotline and i think it uh, it slightly smacked of a government which is losing its way but actually, there was conviction in what Rishi said. I think Keir Starmer will take this quite seriously. He'll be quite careful. We know that in the Uxbridge by-election, the, the ULES policy, the London emissions policy, caused a problem for Labour, and Keir Starmer was very public about that afterwards. On the other hand, for Rishi Sunak, his brand was supposed to be the long-term guy, the guy who was sort of kind of leading, the guy who was um, telling it straight, who is re-establishing Britain's relationships in the world. I mean, the thing you can say definitely is lots of leaders around the world will be quite annoyed with what he's done because they're trying to persuade their populations to come behind the things that they signed up to at the British chaired COP meeting just last year. And suddenly Rishi Sunak is reneging upon that. And that is, I think, an opportunity for Keir Starmer. Yeah, I mean, look, for me, this brings back memories of uh, my time in the Cameron opposition back in 2005, when we made a very conscious decision. I was in the room when we did it, which was, if David Cameron becomes leader of the Conservative Party, then we are going to make green our big issue. We're going to own the green issue, which was, at the time, you know, not front and centre of the political agenda. But once you... To hug a husky. Yeah, hug a husky. And the fact we're still talking about it all these years later shows that it did have cut through and it did change people's perceptions of the Conservative Party at the time. Uh, and we had other things we could have majored on. We've talked about potentially making international aid our big kind of pledge in opposition. But we went for the environment. And then, of course, in government... And Ed, you'll, you'll remember this. Ed Miliband, in I think 2013, says at his conference, we're going to freeze energy bills. This is at a time when oil prices are going up and the government I was part of was feeling the pressure. And suddenly the kind of green commitments look like a bit of an albatross. 
at a, you know, in the middle of a cost of living crisis. And David Cameron famously in private says, when are we going to cut the green crap? So this is the sort of history of all this. And it's just a reminder that with these climate commitments, net zero, remember, means that overall the British economy, the cars, the industry, the homes that we heat are not going to emit any carbon overall if you add it all together. That's a huge change in our economy and it imposes real costs in the transition, even if the goal is a good one for our planet and some would argue will create a more vibrant economy. But you're very vulnerable in a cost of living crisis and I think that's what Rishi Sunak's pointing out. That's true, but I think the it's just not clear at the moment which way the politics is going to go. If industry gets annoyed about the lack of certainty and postponing and the jobs and growth argument is something that Labour can run with. That's good for them. But for Rishi Sunak to turn this against Labour as a trap, that you are going to carry on with things which are very unpopular, which I'm going to um, kind of pull back from, he's got to establish who the bogeyman is, who is the the person who's trying to do this to people. He's got to make people scared. And I think at the moment, most people aren't yet scared about these things. It's on the front of some of the newspapers, but... The idea that, you know, I was about to be forced to not eat meat or to share my car or to change my boiler, those are things which most people have not seen in their their lives. And for those London voters, and it's a small minority who were paying that higher tax because of old cars, for them that had purchase, but more widely across the country, he's going to have to make people afraid of what somebody's going to do to them. And it's not yet clear He's established that. See, I think the bogeyman here is not Labour, it's not the environmental lobby, it's someone with blonde hair. It's Boris Johnson. If if you listen to his speech, what Rishi Sunak is really rejecting is Boris Johnson, because he frames the speech not as a cost of living solution, but as a new kind of politics in which he's going to be honest with people, he says, where he's going to get away from a politics where you announce these big ambitions and aspirations, but you've got no plan to deliver them. And it's very obvious. He is aiming his crossbow, if you like, at Boris Johnson. And it's interesting, as I think people who are fans of Rishi Sunak, people who were relieved that Rishi Sunak had uh, become the prime minister uh, almost a year ago, have been saying for month after month after month, define yourself more against Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, who we'll come on to later in this programme, explain to people why you resigned from Boris Johnson's cabinet, explain to people why you ran against Liz Truss and opposed her policies. And I think that's what this speech is also about. It's about, I'm a different type of politician who's done the hard work, who's got the serious plan, and I'm going to triangulate on this issue between the kind of green evangelists like Ed Miliband and those in my own party who say climate change doesn't exist, and I'm going to come up with a deliverable policy, and that is realistic. I can sell that to the public. And yes, I can also, in the process, tell people about what kind of politician I am, but also set a trap for Labour. The one thing that Rishi Sunak now cannot afford in the next six months through the winter is um, big floods in the country. We've had hot weather in the summer, but actually the hot weather was for people going abroad rather than in England. wasn't a great summer. But, you know, if there is a a moment where people have a hard time, whether that's, um, you know, Gloucester flooding or the eastern side of the country, we've seen these in the last few years, at a time when Rishi Sunak is seen to have been going backwards on an agenda which he was leading on, I think that will make him quite vulnerable. I think he'd be quite worried about that. I certainly think it's also the case that it's quite hard to say, I'm making the long-term decisions, I'm not doing the easy thing, I'm not playing politics. If your first example of that is something where it appears you're doing the easy things, i.e. you're delaying difficult measures, and your party, the Conservative Party propaganda machine, immediately springs into an attack on Labour. But I would say this, Ed, I think Labour made a mistake. For sorting your rubbish into seven different bins, I mean... What was that about? I mean, Labour's not proposed that. They've not proposed a tax on eating meat or uh, car sharing. I thought that was the one point where Rishi Sunak looked really, really vulnerable this morning, trying to justify the claims politically made by him and the Conservative Central Office to Nick Robinson on the Today programme. It looked really, really flaky, like he was just making up. Well, I agree that was the worst bit of what was otherwise a strong interview. And it's a reminder to Rishi Sunak, you have to, if you say you're going to do a more honest direct style of politics that you're going to level with people about, you know, the real costs and things. If you're going to think for the long time, you actually then have to live and breathe that because you'll be called out uh, otherwise as a hypocrite. I think there's an interesting question here for Labour, Ed. I think they made a mistake. And, you know, I think this opposition is getting a lot of things right at the moment. So I don't always say this. 
in immediately saying that they would not accept the delay in the ban on petrol and diesel cars, that if there was a Labour government, they would reimpose the sort of 2030 cut-off time for those cars. If I was the opposition, I would have just taken a bit of time to absorb this, think through the politics. You're right, it's not immediate. It's not like the ULEZ scheme in London that you referred to. But 2030 is not that far away, and people are starting to make decisions about whether to replace a car and how long they're going to have that car for. So personally, I thought Labour fell into a bit of a trap by reacting so quickly, and they really didn't need to. We'll see. I think that's as um, as much about tone as it is about uh, substance. Labour can't sound too excited and evangelical. They've got to be hard-headed. They need that sort of on the side of people not wanting to impose big burdens uh, tone. But the car industry privately is quite destabilised by this, and the vast majority of British people are not going to buy a brand new car this year in 2027 or in 2030. They can carry on buying secondhand petrol and diesel cars for years to come. So for most people, that doesn't bite upon them. Of course, this is an interesting uh, run-up to the Tory party conference. I think for the first time, certainly in my lifetime, the Tories are going first with their conference and Labour are coming second. And what he's clearly, I think, trying to do, Rishi, is a series of interventions before the conference to try and make it a conference about substance rather than a big discussion about whether the Tories have got a chance of winning and what the Boris Johnsonites are saying about things or what the Dean Doris is going to turn up and do. But of course, overshadowing everything and and the kind of central question in British politics at the moment is what is happening to the economy? And that is going to shape not just these party conferences, but the run-up to the general election. And we're recording this podcast on the day when the Monetary Policy Committee has just made its decision on interest rates. And that's what we're going to be talking about next. So on to our second subject, interest rates. The Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee has been meeting while we've been talking and they've just announced their decision. And I'm actually quite surprised by this. They have voted to keep interest rates at the same level, not to have a rate rise. It's a split vote. So 5-4, and four members of the Monetary Policy Committee, including John Cunliffe, the Deputy Governor, voted for a rate rise. But the Governor, Andrew Bailey, four of his colleagues have voted to keep rates at the same level. No rate rise. The question is now, is that the end of rate rises from the Bank of England? I think maybe not. I'm sort of surprised that people are surprised because the Federal Reserve did exactly this earlier this week. Uh, They paused the increase in interest rates, which have been going on for a couple of years now and something we got used to. And it's not that surprising that Bank of England, obviously Andrew Bailey must have had the swing vote if it was 5-4, that they've paused to wait and see what's going to happen because there's some pretty mixed data coming in, isn't there, on the British economy at the moment that would make life quite hard if you were a member of the Monetary Policy Committee. It's true. Well, look, it's true that the latest numbers on growth in the economy were were bad. The July number was actually negative, but inflation has stayed very strong. And um, the latest numbers were inflation down from 6.8 to 6.7, but that is still high compared to the inflation target of 2%. The markets were expecting a rate rise, and um, they've expected UK interest rates to stay higher for longer than America and um, the European Central Bank. I think what I would have done, and I think if I was in the Treasury, this is what I would have preferred, is what I would call a soft quarter or a dovish quarter, where you do another quarter point rise, but the language around it is, we think inflation is now coming down. You give the impression that this is definitely the last rate rise. What then happens is the financial markets interpret that as... Um, The end of rate rises probably means rates are going to be falling sooner rather than later next year. It actually means that if you're borrowing one, two years ahead, interest rates will be lower. So you actually get a slight easing of um, the financial conditions, but at the same time, a signal for the Bank of England, we're getting inflation down very seriously. So I think that is what I would have preferred. I think there's going to continue to be, look, it all depends what actually happens. And I think the great problem for the Treasury and the bank now is that we will only find out in six months' time whether, on the one hand, the economy is still powering along with high inflation or actually slipping into recession. This is the period where policymakers are most um, kind of in the dark, if you like. It's really, really annoying not to be able to do anything to determine that. But, you know, I think a signal that we were really serious 
at this point would have been a better outcome? See, I'm not sure I agree because I think three or four months ago, Britain looked like an outlier. Britain looked like it had a bigger inflation problem than Europe and America even. It had a chronic labour shortage. Wage growth as a result was higher. Inflation expectations were more entrenched. Now, in the last few months, I think Britain has stopped being an outlier. Britain has actually come more into line with what's happening in the United States and more into line with what's happening in Europe, helped also by the new GDP data, which also, very frustrating, you've been in the government for the last couple of years, shows that Britain has not had such a slow recovery from COVID compared to other countries. If you look now, you've had three months in a row where inflation has fallen more than people expected, and there tends to be trends in these directions when the forecasts are wrong. The labour market is turning, so vacancies have fallen, unemployment has started to tick up, and it's not surprising, therefore, that what seems like a moment when the British economy is turning, that the Monetary Policy Committee just pauses. They've done a lot of tightening. They've increased rates a lot, as anyone who's got mortgages at the moment knows full well or got a business loan. I mean, this is interesting. You turn to the politics of this, Ed, and you and I have both through, lived through, both in, in opposition and in government, different periods of economic difficulty. I think there's a kind of moment as you say, of uncertainty. Is the British economy heading into a recession? Because all the data does at the moment suggest that it is, which is why the Bank of England might, at this point, stop increasing the pressure on the economy by increasing rates further. And is a recession necessarily bad for the governing party? I know that sounds like a bizarre question to ask. And there's no doubt a recession is, of course, bad for the people in the economy, people who lose their jobs, businesses that go bust, and so on. So let's not forget the kind of human element to all this, the, the misery that a recession brings. But politically, if you get your recession over and done with now, and you're coming into a general election in a year's time, you might be able to point to some green shoots and you might be able to say as Conservatives, look, we're a safe pair of hands, the economy's recovering. I told you it'd be okay if we got through this. Don't blow it by risking the other side. Yeah. And what we know is, we've talked about this before, is this 1992 or 1997. In the run-up to the 92 election, the economy had been in recession, was starting to recover. People were starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel. John Major, uh, Norman Lamont as Prime Minister and Chancellor were able to run a scare that if you elected a Labour government, then that would lead to higher interest rates or more taxes. And um, so even though the economy had going through a tough period, people were worried that it might become tougher. And uh, that is the strategy that you might want to pursue if you were Rishi Sunak or um, or his chancellor, Jeremy Hunt. But um, I'm not sure whether that's going to work for them this time around. If you look at the numbers on economic competence, what happened a year ago with Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng when interest rates spiked up, when people became very scared about what's going to happen to their interest rates, that feels to me more like what happened with Black Wednesday in September 1992 when we collapsed out of the ERM, but interest rates went up and it looked like the government had lost control. And if that is what is um, going on, very hard to recover from that. And so far... So we've had a, can, I, can I just interrupt you, Ed? Because you're talking about Liz Truss. We've had a question from David Gaffney and he wants to know what do we make of the former governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney's criticisms of Truss this week, saying her government had turned Britain into... Argentina on the channel. This is a reference to, I've just been in Singapore, the, the kind of claim that Britain should become like Singapore on the Thames. Mark Carney laughed that off and said, Liz Truss had turned us into Argentina on the channel, which is much as... Um, Do the people in Singapore like the idea of us being Singapore on Thames or not? Well, the, I tell you what, it's interesting because I met a lot of the senior leadership in Singapore when I was there a couple of days ago. They say it misunderstands the nature of Singapore, which is, yes, a kind of cent great financial centre and attracts a lot of wealth, and a bit of a city-state, but actually there are big issues around social equality in Singapore, and they operate more as a cooperative society than I think is appreciated in Britain. And I also think it's a bit of a misnomer in Britain because it's one thing governing a city-state which has a population of five or six million. It's quite another trying to run a country with 60, 65 million people. If you were only running central London, it wouldn't be such a hard country to govern. I think we could all uh, agree on that. And Liz Truss... Um decided to have a pop back at Mark Carney and his accusation that she had lost control. Shall we hear it? There's quite a lot of finger pointing going on from people like Mark Carney because they don't want to admit their culpability or the culpability of their central banking 
associates in this. Of course, politicians should be held accountable and responsible for what we do, but I don't feel that the same questions are necessarily asked about them. And um, Mark Carney is part of the 25-year economic consensus that has led to low growth across the Western world. <laughs> I mean, the kind of irony of um, what she was saying there, this 25-year economic um, consensus, as she calls it, the left-wing establishment. Um, the left-wing establishment is in favour of Bank of England independence. She calls it the, the dinner party circuit. <laughs> she calls it the dinner rules. party circuit the, of London, Ed, which is an even even greater charge to level against her critics. But her left-wing establishment is, as far as I can see, the Bank of England, the Office of Budget Responsibility, you and me. This is the only time ever in your career you've been accused of being left-wing. I mean, it's never happened before, but Liz Truss is saying that because you're part of this left-wing establishment who, who supported the Treasury and the uh, and the Bank of England. I think it's really important always to remember with Liz Truss who she's speaking to. She's not speaking to you and me. She's not going to persuade us. She's not really speaking to the British public anymore because uh, she's no longer the Prime Minister and she's never going to come back. She's speaking to people around the world, especially in America, who have that sort of right of centre, right wing view of the world, which is there is this big establishment who's trying to rig the system. But if only you broke out of that and cut taxes and cut spending and cut regulation, it would all be okay. And, you know, it's one thing to have DeSantis or Donald Trump or sort of cooks on YouTube saying these things. A former British Prime Minister talking this conspiracy theory language. I mean, it's quite something, isn't it? Well, I, I don't disagree, although, you know, I've known Liz Truss for a long time and I've, I've been friends with her. Uh, and I think there are lots of things she got wrong. She should never have attacked the economic establishment like the Bank of England or sidelined the OBR or fired Tom Scholar, the head of the Treasury. That meant she was not going to get a hearing in the markets. And she should never have put together a cabinet that didn't have her political opponents inside the party who she'd just defeated. So she was in a very brittle position when it all went wrong. And of course, she needed to make the sums add up. So those are three pretty serious charges against her. I think there's a good conspiracy theory we could uh, explore a little bit here. There is an argument in right-wing conservative circles that Liz Truss was brought down by the Bank of England, a bit like Berlusconi was brought down 10 years ago by the European Central Bank, because when the budget blows up and the uh, pension system starts to fall apart and there's a financial crisis. Andrew Bailey steps in and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help, but I'm only going to help for a short period of time. And he stabilises the pension system, but he doesn't say the help's going to be there forever. And as a result, the Conservative Party and the markets quickly come to the conclusion that the only way to stabilise the system is to get rid of Liz Truss. Whereas if the central bank had just said, the help's there, as it always is in a financial crisis, she would have remained. That's the theory. I'm not saying I wholly subscribe to it. And by the way, she and Quasi... Do you partly subscribe to it? Well, I think it's true that the Bank of England could have done more to prop up the government during that time. But I think it's also true that at that point, the markets were never going to trust Liz Truss and Quasi Quarting again. They had done irreparable damage to the reputation of their government and indeed done a huge amount of damage to the Britain's reputation. So I don't think the Bank of England could have saved them. Uh, but put it this way, it certainly didn't throw them a lifeline. I bet you wouldn't find either Chancellor Jeremy Hunt or Prime Minister Rishi Sunak thinking that the Bank of England did the wrong thing in that period. No, I think uh, the Bank of England once again acted in the national interest is the... Uh... <laughs> the diplomatic thing to say at this point. But the idea that Gordon Brown, Tony Blair, you, me, David Cameron, Theresa May, Boris Johnson, that we all wanted low growth, and she's the only person who's ever had the gumption to say, wouldn't it be quite good to have pro-growth policies? I mean, that's nonsense. The issue is not the goal, it is the how. And I'm afraid what she showed was that her prospectus to deliver higher growth was was flawed and it fell apart and um, probably means that nobody's going to go back to that kind of madness um, for quite a few years. It's certainly done more to entrench Treasury orthodoxy than anything else possibly could. No one else is going to bypass the OBR or indeed go around attacking the governor of the Bank of England. So uh, anyway... A pretty interesting decision today from the Monetary Policy Committee. Do you, do you think it's the peak? Uh, I think it is the peak. I'm going to call the peak. I think we've reached the top of the interest rate cycle. 
Now, I also think they're going to hold it for you long. You may be right. I think they're going to hold these rates high for longer than people would like, and they may not start coming down till you know the middle of next year or later. But we will see. And you know, certainly, if the British economy deteriorates more rapidly than people are expecting at the moment, and we go into that recession, then maybe they will start to come down pretty quickly. That will create, by the way, for people with mortgages, even though it's a recession. That will create, you know, a, a sense of optimism about things going forward and the affordability of their homes. That may be right, but things are very different to 30 years ago. 1989, we had no fixed mortgages. Back in 92, Black Wednesday, pretty much everybody was on a variable mortgage. So if the interest rates went up, your mortgage went up. Then when they came down, your mortgage went down. These days, most people are on a fixed rate mortgage. People are going to see their fixed rate mortgages being renegotiated for the next one, two, three years at a higher level than um, the fixed deal they've had up to now. So even if interest rates start to fall from the Bank of England next year, people getting new fixed deals are going to see their mortgage costs rising throughout next year and the year after. And that is quite a big difference that makes it much harder to get that mortgage-driven feel-good. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome back. We're now going to talk about something which is pretty gripping and unfolding this week, which is the allegations from the Canadian Prime Minister that the Indian state or agents of the Indian state were in some way involved in the assassination of a Canadian citizen, a Mr. Nijar, who is a Sikh activist living in British Columbia, and that he was murdered in June. And this week, Justin Trudeau went to the Canadian Parliament and he said this. Over the past number of weeks, Canadian security agencies have been actively pursuing credible allegations of a potential link between agents of the government of India and the killing of a Canadian citizen, Hardeep Singh Nijar. Any involvement of a foreign government in the killing of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil is an unacceptable violation of our sovereignty. I'm pretty clear that the Prime Minister of Canada would not have made that public statement unless he had very, very compelling evidence probably secret intelligence and intercepts of phone calls and the like, that in some way the Indian government was involved, agents of the Indian government. I think for the Indians to um, assassinate a Sikh activist within India, and I think, you know, the Indian track record is not brilliant on some of these things, but to actually send your agents to Canada to kill somebody who's campaigning for Sikh independence within India, I mean, that is, that is like a big escalation. And, you know, for Britain... This is a, a bit of an issue because we are in a special security alliance with the Canadians. That's right, called the Five Eyes. Uh, that's an alliance between Canada and Britain, but also the United States, crucially, uh, Australia and New Zealand, where we share intelligence. I know from my own experience of uh, Chancellor, it's a very close partnership uh, on, on the security front. But here, that security relationship, that intelligence relationship, is running into the economic ties that Britain and others 
want to have with India. And this is all shades, isn't it? A bit of um, the Russian killings in Salisbury, Ed, a couple of years ago. But to be clear, I mean, Britain, America, Australia, they've all backed the Canadians or they've raised concerns. It's clear that they've all seen the intelligence. And I would say it's pretty clear that they're all agreeing with the Canadian interpretation. But the question is, how far does supporting the Canadians go? So I would say they're being surprisingly cautious, by which I mean, if you remember when the killings happened in Salisbury, when Putin's agents tried to kill the Russian double agent who was living in Salisbury at the time, Theresa May, and I'm not the biggest fan of Theresa May, but I think she handled this pretty well. She went round the West. She showed to foreign leaders the intelligence that Britain had, and she got all of the West to come out and condemn Russia and expel some of its diplomats. What I think is striking here is that clearly Britain and America and others have seen the Canadian intelligence. Indeed, they might have received some intelligence from, say, the United States about this. And yet they have not at the moment come out and outright sort of joined in Justin Trudeau's accusation. They haven't said, we've seen the intelligence, we agree with the Canadians. And I think they're holding back because India is such a big and important player now in the world and such an important part of Britain's own ambitions for its economic future. Kind of. I mean, you know, I think politically it's a big deal for Rishi Sunak. He was out at the G20 week or so ago talking up this bilateral trade agreement with India. And... Um, after Brexit, those bilateral agreements have been something they've really talked about as being very significant. The truth is, at the moment, it's really quite insignificant. UK trade with the EU has been for years around 50%. US trade with the UK around 20%. Our trade with India is just 2%. It's very small. The Indians have always been very restrictive in their in their willingness to allow access to Indian markets. And, you know, if our trade with the European Union fell by 5%, to compensate, our trade with India would have to go up not by 5%, but by 350%, you know, a number off the scale number. So in the foreseeable future, the Indian trading relationship is not going to be economically anywhere near as significant as with America or Europe. But politically, it is a big deal. And I also think, George, it sort of changes the um, the way in which kind of politics and economics works as far as trade is concerned. Now we're outside the European Union, because in the old days, you know, these kind of things from a national point of view, you would think of it in security terms, the Five Eyes Alliance, our relationship between Britain, America, Australia, Canada. But the trading relationship was all being done at the European level. It was all done by the European Trade Commissioner. So we didn't have to negotiate these bilateral agreements. We could sort of be quite tough with the Canadians on the security issue, but then say, but the trade issues are all a matter for the EU. They were never really debated in Parliament. There wasn't a great deal of scrutiny. Suddenly, for the British government since Brexit now, um, those trade agreements have to be negotiated by the government. They'll be debated in Parliament, even if at the moment there aren't votes on them. And so the priority Sunak places on a trade deal with India over human rights issues, or in this case, the geopolitics of the Indians acting against a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil, suddenly he's having to deal with those dilemmas in a way that he never used to have to do, or we never used to have to do before 2016. Well, I remember being in the cabinet room with Barack Obama's team and Barack Obama discussing the prospects of a US trade deal if Britain voted for Brexit. And then he went out famously and said, yeah, Britain would be back at the queue and that caused great consternation. Of course, that's turned out to be the case. There's no US trade deal. So for Rishi Sudak, who voted for Brexit and, of course, has close family ties with India through his wife, the Indian trade deal has been seen as the kind of holy grail that could be delivered before the general election that would show that Britain is reaching out beyond the world. But here is a classic example of what happens in politics, particularly in global politics, which we've all experienced in our own careers, haven't we, where you know, something comes along that just makes life unbelievably difficult and inconvenient. And in this case, India's gone and apparently, if, uh, Mr Trudeau's to be believed, gone and assassinated someone, by the way, in a place called Surrey in uh, British Columbia. So that's certainly the most exciting thing that's ever happened in Surrey. But the tit for tat is India today has suspended visas for all Canadians. So this is going to continue to escalate. I just wonder what's happening within the British government at the moment. The intelligence services deeply connected into the Five Eyes Alliance, will be quite worried about us doing anything which doesn't protect the collective. The Treasury will be worried about um, doing something which undermines the 
potential economic benefits of a trade deal with India, even if they are not huge in the short to medium term, what will the Foreign Office do? Will the Foreign Office be advising the Foreign Secretary that we ought to be taking a hard line with India to back the Canadians with this sort of Khashoggi-style assassination? Or will the Foreign Office be saying, actually, the India relationship is more important to Britain than the Canadian relationship, and we can play a little bit fast and loose with that. I think in the end, the Canadian relationship will trump the aspirations with India. And in fact... Uh, so Rishi something... Sunak may not get his trade deal, or at least as one as good as he wants. Well, the reason we bring it up on this podcast is it's one of those stories that could really change the way geopolitics unfolds over the next couple of years and the alliances that are being struck around the world. Watch the space. Right, on to your questions. We've had a ton of questions since our very first podcast, which is great. Thank you so much. Anyone else who wants to send in questions, please send them to questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. We've also had a pretty tremendous response to our ask for some feedback. Um, some of it very positive, which, of course, is the bits that uh, I noticed. Sometimes I would say it's been brutally honest, has it not? <laughs> well, look, people like the economics focus. And um, they like when we're talking about some of the things which we're involved in, if we relate them to the challenges that politics is facing today. On the other hand, um, Chris Googe told us, both presenters, like two competing gorillas in a zoo, are more than willing to throw political shit at each other, protecting their own historical policies and manifesto pledges, which is entertaining, if not fleeting. Not sure what he's, exactly what he's saying there, but um, the good thing is he had loads of uh, suggestions for how we can improve the show. So thank you, Chris. And you can keep sending us your feedback to um, questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. Which one jumped out at you in terms of feedback? Apparently I need to listen a bit more. And Ed, you've got to stop interrupting me. But we've really? also had a... Of course I should interrupt you. <laughs> I mean, that's the only way in which, you know, you have a shut up. <laughs> anyway, let's get on to some questions. Yeah, so we've had a question from Ralph Worrell. And he asks this, Ed has clearly had a level of fame outside number 11 with the likes of Strictly. George, have you ever thought about showing off your talents like how Ed has? Um, well, I, you know... I, <laughs> can you cook? I can cook, better, certainly better than I can dance. So um, Bake Off, I think, would be a better candidate for me than Strictly come dancing. Although I have to say, I thought, as we both handled the car crash-like feeling that happens when your political career comes to a sudden end. I thought um, your uh, Strictly Come Dancing was a better midlife crisis than mine. There was this bit in the, in the interview we did in the Sunday Times last weekend where you said, um, I went from being the favourite to be the next Prime Minister to being completely out. And I think it took me a couple of years to really kind of find my feet again. And I, I read that and because I was there with you, I, I remember you saying it. And I thought, I wonder what, what is underneath that? What was it about those two years and finding your feet, which was hard? Well, I think the hardest thing, isn't it, is that politics is such an all-consuming business and it takes over your whole life that when you suddenly stop doing it, it's a kind of big absence. It's a big... Uh, and it's quite hard to find anything else professionally that kind of fills the hole. But at the same time, it does take you a while to realise it's also a bit mad and that you don't have to have your life completely consumed by a kind of titanic struggle, <laughs> you know, shouting at your people like you across the House of Commons. So I think it took me a while. Um, I didn't use Strictly Come Dancing as the route to find my feet. But I, I guess editing the Evening Standard was, for me, uh, what Americans, I don't really like this phrase, but I'm going to use it, what Americans would call a good off-ramp. So I could still indulge in my politics whilst uh, not being directly involved. I think also the thing you didn't have was opposition, which, uh, which does make a difference because, you know, government is the best thing you ever do. It's so hard, it's so challenging, but it's so important. But then you know, for us in 2010, we came out of government after 13 years of being there, we had a leadership election, and um, you know, that is quite cathartic if it's if, if not quite painful. And then we then had four years in opposition. And let's be honest, four years where it didn't look like we were going to get back into government and again. And so for me, that period of 2010 to 2015 was quite a long period of adjustment. And you sort of mourn the passing of your time in government. And uh, so by the time I lost my seat in 2015, I was looking forward. It was still quite hard. I ended up writing a book to begin with because I just wanted to write lots and lots of things down. It was, um, it was hard to move on. But I think for you, going from being 
like right in the centre of things, the Chancellor in government straight out. And that is a harder thing to to deal with. That's a bigger shock than I experienced. Even though you didn't lose your seat, which is, you know, in a different way, a bit of a shock. Yeah, though still there's a, there's a kind of what if if I'd stood again in the 2017 election. I mean, at the time I thought Theresa May was uh, going to be the Prime Minister for years and she wouldn't bring me back. Little did I know there'd be a whole string of the <laughs> sanity chancellors after that. But uh, uh, there we go. This podcast is very cathartic as we give advice to people who do the jobs we used to do. Talking of the jobs we used to do, our next question is a voice note from Simon Arthur about something which is very close to your heart, George. Be really interested to hear your thoughts on levelling up in terms of what it both means to you, what it could look like in the future. I suppose, getting under the bonnet of what it actually entails or what it could entail. Thank you, Simon. I'm going to have to disappoint you just for a few more weeks because one of the things I have done since I came out of politics is do stuff at King's in London and in at Harvard. And uh, I wrote a paper about regional inequality uh, earlier in the year with um, colleagues at uh, Harvard and MIT. But we've also done interviews with 100 policymakers who've been involved in levelling up tackling regional inequality all the way back to 1979. John Major, Michael Heseltine, Ken Clark, Blair, Brown, George, loads of secretaries of state for trade and industry, local government, regional development agencies. That's going to come out in October with their reflections on why levelling up and regional policy has failed to deliver decade after decade and what we can do uh, about that for the future. And I'm certainly keen that we focus on that issue when paper comes out at the end of October. Mm, that should be pretty good reading. I'm not sure necessarily, however, I'll be giving it to my dad for Christmas. Um, I'll tell you one thing. I'll... <laughs> I think he'd actually. I think actually he would really, really find it interesting. And I spoke to your mother, and I think she'd find it interesting too. Just saying. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll put it on the uh, Christmas gift. List. I'll do a signed version. Uh, you, we can get a, we can get a signed version. I think, can't we, Ed? I t- there's one interesting thing I just pick up from last week's show on HS2, because there's been a lot of speculation, as well as watering down the green pledges, Rishi Sunak will curtail HS2, it will stop in Birmingham, it will stop in Ealing rather than in Euston. I think this will be a big blow to levelling up, as I think I said last week. But certainly in the last week, I've picked up a big internal row going on inside the Conservative Party that hasn't yet broken surface about whether he should go ahead with this. And certainly I think it'll be hard to claim you're going to take the kind of difficult decisions for the long term if you cancel the long-term plan to build a high-speed rail line that has had the support of administrations, Labour and Conservative, over the last 15 years and go for the easy thing of uh, caving in to the lobbies who don't want it built. Well, again, controversial. I'm not going to rise to that one, but thank you to everybody for all of your questions. We've loved reading them. Can't wait to feature them in the coming weeks. I have to say, what a relief it is to have got through this whole podcast without talking about Russell Brand, unlike every other podcast well, hold on, Luckily, hold, luckily hold we didn't on. have any questions about it, so there was, there was well, nothing to respond I've got a to. Question. I've got a question about it. Didn't uh, Russell Brand and Ed Miliband do something just before the uh, general election? I don't know if you were part of that. Didn't, didn't uh, Russell Brand endorse Mr Miliband, your, your uh, comrade in arms? Well, look, that was back in 2015. I have to say, you know, I know Ed Miliband really well. He would be as shocked and appalled at um, the terrible allegations which very brave uh, women have come forward and shared with the Sunday Times and the Dispatches programme at potentially great cost to them, but totally the right thing to do. Um, And he would not have known about any of that when he met him in 2015. But actually, there is a story here, which is at um, the very beginning of January 2015, um, rather out of the blue, Russell Brand on a, a Channel 4 quiz, I think it was called the Big Fat Quiz or something, decided to call me a clicky-wristed, snidey C-word. And he'd be unsurprised to know that Russell Brand didn't say C-word, he just said the C-word. And um, this was all over the newspapers. And I, the next day, was um, on uh, the TV talking about policy and public spending and get asked about Russell Brand and why he'd said this about me. And it was totally weird. I mean... What does clicky-wristed mean? Was it about my sexuality? Was it about a disability? I just said that I thought Joe Brand was a better political commentator than than Russell Brand and that he was a pound shot Ben Elton, um, which got a little bit of um, news coverage. As a consequence, 
you know, this this rapid deterioration in my relationship with Russell Brand, which, by the way, didn't really exist before anyway, I was not consulted um, when Ed Miliband then chose to go to Russell Brand's house to do his interview in the election campaign. If they'd asked me, I'd have said, what? After what you said? Really? I mean, the guy's a creep. Anyway, as I said, Ed Miliband, I think, was trying to win over the youth vote, probably encouraged to do this by Owen Jones, who did quite a lot of stuff with Russell Brand back then. Ed Miliband, I know, will be looking back and thinking, you know, he wished he hadn't done it. Yes, and, well, uh, I, I know Ed Miliband too, and I agree with you. He would be um, appalled. Uh, it seems to be one of those classic cases we've had, of course, you know, unproven allegations and so on, but it seems to be one of those hiding in plain sight cases, which comes along periodically and um, stuns the British establishment. But if you're defined by your enemies, Ed, you can wear it as a badge of honour that Russell Brand didn't like you. I know, I should have it on a T-shirt. Clicky, wristed, snidey C-word. That's what he called me. And, you know, now I feel proud to have been slandered by him. Anyway, luckily, nobody asked us a question about that, so we didn't have to talk about it. And, That's right, um, yes. And, and we, we kind of haven't. But you can get in touch with questions and comments by emailing us questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. And we had tons this week and would love to have loads more. Or you can send us a message on our socials at Poll Currency, that's P-O-L Currency, or indeed through YouTube where you can watch extended clips of the show. So that's all for this week. And uh, George, are you going to be back in Britain next week? I will be back in Singapore upon Thames, the real place. And (laughs) um, I look forward to it. See you next Thursday. See you next week. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.